And when you mix the two, I have a, I have a serious concern as to keeping all of the reasons why we went into medicine on the forefront and not being influenced in a negative way and ultimately affecting patient care in a negative way. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Now here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. My guest on the program today is Dr. John Stormont. Dr. John Stormont is from Louisiana. He went to medical school at LSU. He completed his residency at UT Health Science Center in Houston, and he completed his REI fellowship at the University of Vermont up north in Burlington. Dr. Stormont went back to Louisiana, opened up a private practice where he has been in practice since 2002. And we're going to talk about that, what that's like, and the offers of selling equity in a practice or in a lab. Dr. Stormont, John, welcome to the program. Thanks, Griffin. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Well, I want to start off with part of the reason why this conversation came about is after an earlier podcast episode, started texting back and forth, and we talked a little bit about private equity coming into the space. And even though that was reserved later for the questions, I want to start off with that. You had expressed to me a bit of concern if private equity continues to to move forth in in practice control. And I might be paraphrasing. So if I am, will you put it in your own words and then share with me what that concern is? Yeah, I I, I think that overall, when you talk to 100 doctors and ask them why they went in to medicine, why they wanted to be a doctor, even though making profits is in maybe the top 10 of their reasons, most all of us will say we went in to help people, to treat medicine, to engage in the science of decreasing disease. And a private equities impetus and the reason why they exist is, is solely to make money. And when you mix the two, I have a, I have a serious concern as to keeping all of the reasons why we went into medicine on the forefront and not being influenced in a negative way and ultimately affecting patient care in a negative way. I guess what's the control that you feel that you're worried about practitioners losing, that you're worried about providers losing that would be set ransom to someone that's only maximizing the top line or looking to reduce the bottom line? I don't think it's all bad. I think that we need to look at the priority. And so when I talk to people about whether or not you know, private equity is good and mixing private equity and medicine. It could be a really good thing for a practice, and I'll get into more details on how. But you want to ask yourself before you do anything, how can they help me and how can they help my patients? And I think that if it's more than just providing early retirement, then you, you need to carry that relationship further. I mean, literally, if you can decrease your overhead because of group purchasing uh, power, if you can have more leadership from private equity and from other groups that can show you an easier way and a more efficient way to run your practice, then that's, that's a huge upside because not everybody who comes out of training and who starts their practice, you know, very few of us have, especially me, had any experience with that. 
And so maybe they can provide leadership, which would help your practice. However, you know, there are lots of, of facets of a practice that can be negatively impacted. Um, for instance, let's say that, you know, how do you think a private equity group would really like to get paid? You think they want to contract with a bunch of blue crosses and third party payers? You think they would like cash? Well, what about the doctor in practice? Well, he wants to serve or she wants to serve the community. And if it means taking a, a contracted rate or a lower reimbursement to serve the community and to, and to help people, well, that's what doctors have been doing for decades. And so there's an obvious, you know, conflict there. Do you say, I'm just going to take cash and, and do what the private equity wants, or am I going to compromise and say, it's better for the patients if I take insurance or if I take, uh, you know, decreased reimbursement to help. And I think that there's got to be a give and take on both sides that you can't just, you've, you've got to be focused on patient care and not just about profits. Well, to that point, one of the reasons why somebody might be considering selling equity of their practice is because they're getting beat up by insurance companies or they feel if they're a small practice and they're in a market with much larger practices that have better deals with United or Blue Cross or Aetna, they might view what you just mentioned as a pro. What, how's that balance? Well, I think the bottom line is, is you've got to, the devil is in the details. So if you, if you're considering selling or if you, you know, you look at the, the deal, if you simply just look at, I'm going to get, pick a number, $5 million for my practice, and then I'm going to be an employer of this group. The bottom line is that when you sell your practice in its entirety, you will become an employee and you lose control. It doesn't matter how, you know, bells and whistles that they, that they put out there, you are an employee. And by you being an employee, you lose control of how and you make decisions such as third-party payers and whatever. So if you're getting beat up so much that you say, I'm just going to throw in the towel and I'm fine with being an employee and let them um, take over for that and these decisions will be theirs, then that's, a, that's an active decision. But what you're relinquishing is, is control and that might come back to bite you. And we have to be really careful on what your obligations are. I, I have a, a, a close friend who sold his practice. It was a pediatric practice, uh, you know, seven or eight years ago. And he got, you know, several million dollars for it. And year into it, he was pretty happy with the new cash that he had received. But, oh, by the way, you need to start Saturday clinics and you need to extend your hours until 6.30 p.m. every night. And all of these, these you know, um, in, increased requirements and he didn't have any say so in it and, and, and had to continue to follow in their in their guide guidance and, and, and recommendations he didn't have any say over how that was done he couldn't give discounts to patients who he felt needed it he didn't have any say so in that so you know it's a matter of control and so you have to you have to weigh the balance you have to balance that with with getting you know paid for your practice there's a lot to consider in pros and cons. Let's talk a little bit about your own consideration because I've known you for years and since the beginning, you had been having these conversations and you'd been approached by suitors who wanted to buy equity in the practice. We'll talk about we'll later a bit about the decision that you made and why, but what was that process like talking with suitors? What did you have to consider 
personally? In answering this question, I'm going to, I'll try to keep it brief, but I really think it's important kind of for the listeners to, to help identify understanding where I came from and sort of what type of practice I have. As you said in the intro, I, I moved to Louisiana from Vermont and I joined the larger group out of New Orleans, but I was basically a satellite in Lafayette, which is a couple of hours west of New Orleans. And so I was the only REI in town. And then after a couple of years, I broke away from that group and started my own practice. And, you know, it was me and I had a senior embryologist and and an offsite lab director. And we did fine. We were, you know, by ourselves and, and we were small. We did about 100, 120 cycles of IVF a year. And, you know, we had a good product and but it wasn't anything that was attractive to, to any large corporations wanting to buy my practice. And, and, and so I was sort of under the radar for a long time and loved it. And those were some of my favorite days in practice in retrospect, as we grew, we ultimately reached out to a practice in, in Baton Rouge and the, the physician was retiring. And I acquired that practice mainly because there was some larger private equities looking at, at moving into Baton Rouge and, I was, it was sort of a defensive move for me because I didn't want them to move in and then, and then to take over and compete in, in my area. So I, I bought the practice and, and we hired another position and, and now we have three positions between these two locations. But now we became about a 200, 250 cycle a year practice and, and we were a little bit higher up on the radar. And because of that, we were first approached by a company at the time it was Vivere. And let me first say real quick, just so we'll kind of put the asterisk by everything. I'm going to describe the offers and the, the specifics of the cases as I remember them. If, if I speak incorrectly or if I describe a deal that was not factually correct, I, I apologize, but I'm going to, I don't, I don't want anybody getting upset <laughs> over the content of what I say. So I'm going to try to remember it as, stated as I remember it. Bavir had an initial, their program initially was not to buy practices, but to set up an IVF clinic in, in an ambulatory surgery center. So they came to me saying, hey, I want I want to offer you to build you a, a lab in, in Lafayette, Louisiana, and, and you could also have a surgery center. And their model was a little weird because they said, you know, let's say that the, the lab was going to cost a million dollars. They'll say, we'll, we'll pay for it all. And then you're going to own 60%. And so you're going to pay us back $600,000 over, you know, plus interest over the next five years. And, and then once you have it paid off, then you can get 60% of everything going forward and we'll get 40% of everything for the rest of your life. And it seemed like with that, they weren't really offering anything, but the direction and building a lab and experience and building a lab and maybe offering this sort of a, of a bank and that model I don't think lasted I think they did a couple of deals with that model but not a lot and then they changed their model and developed a different um, proposition to say we will buy your practice or a percentage of your practice so in my case that was right after we bought the Baton Rouge practice and so now again we we're about 240 cycles a year and they said we want to we want to buy 40% of your practice and, and we will, we will buy you with a multiple of your 
of your EBITDA. So the, you know, the, I, I laugh because five years ago, probably only 1% of fertility doctors knew the term EBITDA. Yeah. I, was one of, I was one of them who didn't know, but just, just for the listeners, it's, it's the earnings, you know, before taxes, interest, depreciation, and amortization. This is basically how is your company performing without having to take into account some of the, the other things get in the way of describing your earnings and, and whatnot. So it's, it's, you know, how profitable are you? So in this multiple of your EBITDA, Bavier said, we'll, we'll pay you, I forget what the number was, 5X or 6X of, of that. And so you say, great. So you, if my EBITDA was a million, then they're going to pay me 400,000 times five and they're going to give me $2 million. And, and of course, then after taxes, you have this and whatever. And so you, you have some, you have some cash in your bank. But for the remainder of your life, you're giving them 40% of your earnings, even if you grow to 400 cycles. And so to me, they said, what we're going to bring to you is we're going to bring you experience and marketing, group purchasing power. We're going to give you so much stuff that your practice is going to thrive with us because of our expertise. So when they approached me like that, I said, where have you done this before? Oh, we've done it here. And I said, well, let me go talk to those people. Well, they're not quite ready yet, and, and and we've done it here. Well, that's quite different than this person. So they hadn't really proven to me that they were bringing me anything. And that goes back to the first point that I made earlier is what? how can they help me? And these guys were really nice, and I thoroughly enjoyed working with them in, in our discussions. But I just couldn't see that they could do anything a whole lot better than what we were already doing it and giving away 40% of my revenue for the rest of my life. And just FYI, I'm 53 years old. And so at the time I was whatever, 49 years old. So I kind of have a few years left and I just didn't feel like it was, I felt comfortable in giving that much away and not getting that much in return. So that was the, the first two sort of introductions to this private equity being involved in practices. And I think that I'm, I've had fewer offers in many practices just because our practice size is so small, but I kept with the, with the advice that somebody had given me is make sure that what they're bringing to you is, is, is worth giving away. And it, to me, it, that just didn't apply. So that's why I declined those two opportunities. There are people listening that have not seen this influx of capital yet, have not been approached typically in smaller markets, uh, typically in the interior of the country. So I'd like you to explain in operational terms, what's the difference between selling the lab and selling the practice, selling part of the lab or selling part of the practice? So let's go, let's take a, a step back. So one one of the, the ways in, in which I've always sort of looked at my practice and, and for a long time, you know, especially in a small, in a small company or a small practice, you know, we have lab people and we have practice people and they all mingle and, and we're all friends and we don't have this, you know, this divider up that says, you know, you're different than us. So in our small medical practice, you know, we all work together. However, on paper, in, in reality, the practice is your identity. The practice is your personality. Practices can vary from one to the other. Practices should vary depending on, you know, the nature of, of the, the how the doctors behave and how they treat patients and whatnot and what your priorities are. 
do you spend money on a very expensive, you know, uh, decor or, or, or not? You know, those are just kind of small decisions. The, the lab, on the other hand, needs to be very consistent. The lab needs to be, you know, they don't need to vary too much. They need to produce a product which is a, a good embryo every time if possible. And so we divided up our lab and our practice into separate corporations not necessarily for sale, but just because they they probably needed to be insulated from one another anyway. Uh, medical legally, it, it helps. But from a standpoint of selling just the lab or the practice, that was never a consideration for me until I was approached by Ovation Fertility, in which their model was quite different than the other. So to the listeners who have never considered separating them, especially in the small clinics, it's not necessary that you, you have to do that, but it, it does seem to make it easier to follow your cost and your expenses and, you know, how much does it cost to actually do an IBS cycle and what your, what your overhead is for the lab part, what your overhead is for the practice part. And I think helping that allows you to set your prices and to identify your price point um, for a specific IBS cycle. So that's kind of how it helped us. When Ovation approached me, I'm close friends with one of the original founders of Ovation, is Kalen Silverberg, and he and I have known each other for, you know, 20 years. And, and he said, you know, even though you are a smaller, you know, practice compared to some of the other Ovation clinics, you know, we would like to, you know, have some discussions about buying the lab. And so that was Another reason why it was helpful for me to be able to then have talks about selling the lab portion. I didn't have any desire to lose my autonomy of my practice to anybody. And maybe that's ego driven and maybe it's, it's just because we worked really hard to get where we are. And I, I didn't see a need to, to lose that on the flip side. I have a lab director and at the time and, when we were selling to, when we were talking to Ovation, I was having a, some instability and my, my lab director had moved out of town. And so I was, I was having to hire a new person and hiring to, to, to Louisiana is different than hiring to a bigger city, New York, Boston, or, or wherever it's, it's hard to recruit. And I needed a, a, a really good quality lab director and I wanted to be affiliated with, with continued good quality uh, embryology. And that's not easy. It's not as easy as it sounds. And so I was quite vulnerable if I didn't have a good quality lab. And so this offered me some stability and decreased vulnerability to affiliate with, you know, six or seven other ovation clinics that have good outcomes and good pregnancy rates and, and, and good lab people who could offer us not only capital to increase and to improve our, our lab equipment, but to also offer some camaraderie and collaboration, both with the clinicians as well as the lab teams to make sure we're putting out the best product possible. And that seemed very attractive to me for a single or, you know, a very small group in a, in a rural area of the country that I could now kind of automatically be affiliated with some uh, groups that have good rates. And so our, our rates have always been, you know, very good and, and I'm proud of that, but it's a very vulnerable feeling. You know, one, one move, one person leaves, you could, it could dramatically affect the care that your patients receive. And so that was the 
another impetus for me. And, you know, my practice, again, was my identity and losing control of that, which, which is more than I wanted at this stage in my career. But when you sell the practice, you're going to work for somebody else. And I just didn't want to work for another company. I, I still remain our lab's medical director, and I have final say in how the labs run from a clinical perspective. And I'm still a shareholder innovation, so I still have a vested interest, and they don't have total control over over my lab. It's very much a collaborative effort. You tend to, I think, be a little bit more participative in the business side of the practice than a lot of independent doctors, especially independent docs in small markets. In my opinion, you had a nice website before. A lot of people had nicer websites. You read business books. You are interested in business development and, you know, big picture sort of self culture improvement. And I don't see a lot of independent practices, owners in smaller markets doing the same thing. So talk a little bit about that, I guess. At what point does it make, you know, for people that aren't into that versus why it's important to you and how it intersects with delivering to the standard of care? Good question, because I I think from my perspective, I was, I didn't have a business background. I majored in microbiology. I'm a science nerd. I, you know, I have, you know, my friends, I'm a runner and my running group were all a bunch of business people. And when they started talking about business, I would just put my, my iPod on and, 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 and run and not even listen to them because it just, I didn't understand it. And at one point I finally got aggravated because I just didn't understand it. So I started do, doing a lot more reading and understanding and, and, and digging into it. And, and what I learned was it just like you can imagine, it's not, it's not as difficult as it seems. And the more I understood it, I think the better I, I could, I could identify with how to make the practice more efficient and better. And, and I, I have a great team. My, my director, she's just amazing. And she helps point out, you know, for me not to spend so much time working on really little bitty things, but things that make a, a difference in our, our practice process. So to the, to the people who don't like it or understand it, it's worth the time to, to get into it a little bit and to, to read some books that, that help you focus on the processes, you know, the, the old Jim Collins book, good to great. I mean, it's written in the nineties, but it's just, it's so applicable to REI practices. It's, it's wonderful to, to look at that and say, how do you deliver a product? And it's really touchy-feely, just like REI is. So these patients get the, the benefit of, of the doctors putting a lot of effort into making them feel good and producing a, a good product. From a standpoint of, of how, how that impacts my decision-making, I think the more I understood it, the more that this particular offer from Ovation fit our group. And I'd absolutely do not think it fits everybody's group it's it's and i would argue that that the influx of private equity and medicine is going to be a pendulum and it's going to take over and we're going to see a, a i think a negative impact because people are going to be worrying about ebitda and they're not going to worry about your your patient's outcome and when a, a you know when a patient's really upset and, and you think that by giving her a half off of her next ivs cycle will make her less upset, and hopefully she gets a good outcome from that. That's just not going to be able to be done when 
when they're run by big companies, you know, that are not interested in, in, in the personal touch of that. So I'm concerned that a lot of older docs who are closer to retirement are just going to give away or sell all these big practices. And these new docs who are coming in to the market out of fellowship and they're in their, their 30s and early 40s, they're not going to, they're going to, all they're going to become is employees. And I, and, I, and I don't like that for our specialty. I like the idea of people owning the practice. And I think they put more effort into it to improve pregnancy rates and to improve patient care. But we'll have to wait and see. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, about hiring a new doctor, what partnerships what partnership tracks are like or what they should be like, because you brought on a few docs. And honestly, John, my hypothesis of no small part of why private equity is able to move in so quickly is because there's a lot of docs your age and older who are, some are within 10 years of retirement, some are within five years of retirement, and they are having a hard time recruiting young associate docs or new specialists right out of fellowship and I think it's because they're not reading good to great. They're not investing in their practice as a business. And so these docs are coming out and they're thinking, okay, I'm six figures in debt from medical school, from not making a lot of money in residency and then fellowship training from undergrad. And now I'm going to go to this smaller practice that is doesn't even you know, have online scheduling or has no social <laughs> media presence or is still writing everything by paper check. And that doc isn't going to let me make any changes for five years. And then they're going to saddle me with everything when I leave. So let's talk about what partnership tracks should be like from your experience. Because my opinion, I, I think part of the reason why private equity is moving in so quickly is because these docs don't have another option because why the hell would a 34-year-old want to take over some of these practices? Great question. So I'm, I'm going to, I have two physicians working with me. I never liked the term, you know, distinguishing between partners and employee positions and calling them that there. We have, we have three docs working with us, but for the sake of this conversation, it's, it's important uh, to distinguish their roles and their different um the different stages and training. So one of the docs is a little bit older than I am, and she and I trained together. We've been friends for many, many years. And so she joined me about five years ago, and she said, John, I just want to be that employee position, you know, you know, and so we have a different structure. And I, I want, I've always felt, this is just me talking, I always felt that everybody should have a production sort of bonus structure that if you work harder and you do well, you should be paid for it. I And so that's sort of given. Now, a younger doctor I just hired in July came out of training and, and he's also unique. I, I listened to your other pod, podcast from your your second year fellow that you, that you interviewed and she had some, some good insight as well. In, either she made a comment or somebody's made the comment along the way, maybe 10% of the fellows getting out now really want to one day be an owner and in charge of their practice. And when I got out, heck, we are all doing that. And we all wanted to, to join a practice that we thought we were going to be there for the rest of our lives and one day own it or at least be a, an equal partner. And that was just the way. And, and I, it wasn't 
you know, I look back and I, I started it from, from scratch and, you know, it's, I, I guess it was kind of crazy at the time, but we just did it and it worked and it's hard to do that now. So, but the, my new partner that I just hired out of training, that's what he wants. And he is from Louisiana. And I, I mean, I hope that he's here until he's 80 because I, because he's, he's really got it. So if I, if I put a barrier in front of him and said, you can't be partner for five years. And when you do, it's going to cost you 4 million to buy in. And you're only going to be a 20% partner and put all these barriers. There's no way he's going to do that. That's just idiotic. What I want, if I'm smart, I want him to be a full partner equal to me as soon as possible, because that means he is equally invested into our success. I got to give up the idea of, you know, of maybe making all that profit, but now I've got a guy working with me and we're equally invested into the same thing rather than there being a pyramid and a hierarchy of he's got to pay me for a number of years so I can quote, make my money back. There are a lot of people in their early to mid sixties who are now looking at their retirement and saying, you know, I didn't save as much as I could. Is there any way I can garner a sale and, and help fund my retirement because I just didn't do as good a job about that later. Those pay, those people are, are justified in, in selling, but all of their younger partners or their younger employee positions are kind of getting screwed. And so I think that in recruiting, and I did this with the young doctor that I just hired, I said, I'm considering this deal with Ovation. I want you to understand that if you say no, I haven't even hired, we don't even have a contract. But if you say no and you think you're completely opposed to it, I'm done. I'm not doing it. And and we didn't have a contract, and I gave him that much I, I, I respect to say, I need you more than I need Ovation. I need you to help build this practice, and I want you to take over this practice one day. When And, and so I, I think that it makes more sense to offer partnership and equal partnership early rather than trying to pay yourself and have them work for you. I get disgusted when I hear of the young people coming in and the, they, they join and they say, I'm going to make you a partner in four years. And four years comes up, they say, oh, sorry, not going to work. It's going to be five years. And then the five year comes up and they, they, they dangle that chair and they just never make them a partner. And it's just cruel. And I think it's not right and not fair to do it's happening a lot, John. I can think of six different cases off the top of my head where that's happened in the last six months. Let me tell you why it doesn't make sense. Let's say that for the sake of argument, I have, uh, you know, a, a whatever, $400,000 overhead every month. Let me say that that's where my overhead is. If I pay these guys a salary, then all of their revenue I use to pay that overhead. But ultimately, after it's all said and done, I've got to pay that $400,000 overhead. If I have a, an equal partner, I only have to pay $200,000 now. She or he has to pay the other $200,000. That's the way you pay yourself, by, by lowering your overhead, by sharing in that overhead with them. And it's an equal and it's completely fair. So you might not make as much money on the on the revenue side, but you're lowering your overhead. To me, that makes a whole lot more sense. And it's so much more fun when everybody's equally invested rather than the, the younger or the new hire feels like 
they're enslaving to you and, and that, you know, please can I possibly have 20% of the practice if I pay you this. And I, I just think you need to be more fair to these guys because it makes for a, a happier work day. This is a rabbit hole that I could go down for several episodes. In fact, we have two of these subtopics are going to be episodes within the next few weeks. I'd love to have you back on the show to talk more about it. Let's conclude with where we started from, which is private equity coming into the field, taking it over. And that's the perception that a lot of people have. A lot of people believe that in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, that it will all be corporate owned practice groups. I have my own opinion on that. Do you think that in the end, almost everyone is going to have to sell part of their practice to a larger company, either part of their practice or part of the lab? And why or why not do you feel that the field will go in that direction? There's part of me wants to say that there will be some holdouts. And if we could get 30% 30% of all the practices in America to hold out and not do it, then I think we'll remain fairly stable. One of the negatives is that if a large percentage of practices do that, there's really no going back. To untie yourself to these to these big corporations is really tough legally. And the only way that it doesn't work, and I think that this is a, a reasonable outcome, you have a whole lot of private equity and they end up screwing over doctors in the end. Doctors are just going to quit and start on and start over again, and it might take a generation to do that. But I don't think that we're just going to lay down and play dead if if we get treated unfairly. So I think we're a good enough group, and I I I tend to think that most REIs and OBGYNs in in, in particular are good-hearted, and they they're not just in this for money. And and you know, private equity is is all about profits. Um, I, I, I worry that private equity is going to limit access to care. I worry about that this is not going to be a great thing for patients and it's going to lose some of the personality of the practice. But I do see that the good part about that is if we can get more capital infused, maybe that results in better pregnancy rates for our patients, better lab equipment, better consolidation, better collaboration with other clinics. I would love to see that if a bigger companies, you know, started doing more research and started doing things that we can't do individually, that's, that's exciting because that's almost kind of like the, the old academic affiliations. You, you know, you're in a large academic institution with money. And so great research and great outcomes can come from that. So if we can use this to our advantage and to our patient's advantage, it might be a nice mix. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see. I agree. I, I agree with your point that if people start to feel treated unfairly, they'll go off and start their own thing anyway. And that's why I liken what's happening in our field to the same thing that's happening among breweries and regional banks. Right? You've got a small town bank that's gobbled up by the regional bank, which is gobbled up by the the semi national bank, which is gobbled up by an international bank, and then the it starts all over again. A new credit union grows, expands, merges with the next one. In breweries, we had SAB, we had Miller, Coors, Anheuser-Busch for the longest time. And then South Africa Brewing bought Miller and Coors. InBev came in and bought Anheuser-Busch. Now we just have two companies. But in every small town in America, there's 10 microbreweries and hundreds in big cities. And some of them are getting bigger and 
becoming middle-sized and that cycle is happening in REI as well. I believe I can think of three different practices that uh, even though it's a compliment, I won't mention them by name, but they're independently owned and they're all growing very rapidly against much larger private equity funded competitors because they're doing it their own way. So John, on this topic, is there anything you want to conclude with our audience before I let you go? I'm going to reiterate the, the advice that was given to me and, I, and, I, and it rings true. Before you sell, before you um, look at these opportunities, number one, make sure you have good legal representation who understands the dynamics and the potential of how it can negatively affect you. Strongly consider how they can help you. Do they bring something to the table that you otherwise can't do on your own or don't want to do on your own? And and don't just do it for money. And even though money is important, and I understand that, I think if you make a decision, especially with a practice that you've identified with for, you know, two to, you know, 20 years, just doing it for, for a retirement kick, I think that would be a bad move, but it might be, you know, the only move for you. So I think that just to, to make sure that you're doing it as it helps you and helps your patients and helps your staff. Dr. John Stormont, thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you have a strong opinion about today's episode, we want to hear it. Agree, disagree, or have another point to add, please email podcast at fertilitybridge.com and tell us if you recommend a guest or a topic for a future episode. If you're ready to skyrocket your fertility practices growth and double your IVF cycles, schedule your fertility marketing discovery call by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you just want to learn more tactics to market your fertility center, download our free ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing on fertilitybridge.com, also available in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast, and we look forward to talking more fertility shop on future episodes.